Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, welcome to the Relevate podcast. Excuse my voice as I am recovering from the flu, but I'm back and on the road to recovery. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode with Janine Maxwell from Heart for Africa. She is truly one of my heroes, and you'll see why after hearing her amazing story. Janine once lived a very successful and comfortable life as an executive and owner of her own marketing firm. But then 9-11 struck and it changed everything. What has transpired since that time has been no less than awe-inspiring as she sold the business and most of her worldly possessions and along with her husband Ian moved to Swaziland, Africa to open an orphanage. It's a story of incredible faith, bravery, hope, and heartbreak. Listen and be inspired. Janine Maxwell, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Well, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, it's so good to hear your voice. And I'm <laughs> I'm a little bit bummed that you're in the Alpharetta area and we're not in the same room having this conversation. I know, I know, but I heard you were sick and you know, I just uh, don't need to re- take those cooties back to my baby. <laughs> I, I, hear, I hear you. I appreciate you. The last thing we need is, is you getting sick. So I know your background, but I think my listeners would really, really love just to learn a little bit more about who you are and where you came from and kind of what happened before you and your family moving to Africa. Sure. Well, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Northern Ontario and ended up um, running a, I started my own business actually when I was 24 in Toronto. I worked in the marketing industry and loved my life and loved my job and was very successful and had, you know, big clients like Disney and Kellogg's and, you know, lots of consumer back packaged goods companies. And um, then on September 11, 2001, I was in New York City when the planes were crashing and ran for my life, you know, 60 blocks. And I mean, my story isn't anywhere near anyone else's, but I was terrified. And my husband was on a flight to Chicago while I was in New York. So I didn't know what was going on with him. And he knew he didn't know what was going on with me. And our two young children were in Canada. Oh, my gosh. So it was a day that everyone remembers where they were, and it was a day that changed the world, and it certainly changed my life, or the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. So from there, I really went on the search for the meaning of life. You know, what am I doing? Where, you know, I had this successful business. Sorry, I'm making a lot of noise right behind me. Okay. Um, uh, you know, what am I doing? What's the, what's the meaning of life? And I ended up going with a friend to Africa. And they were going over to just sort of film the need of street kids. And I didn't even know what a street kid was. Mm-hmm. And uh, myself, you know, in the uh, on the streets of Zambia. 
And uh, it just changed my life, absolutely changed my life. Wow. So that's sort of the, the gist of the background. <laughs> yeah. So I remember reading your story about that um, 9-11, and didn't you run out of your shoes? Uh, well, actually, I, they, they certainly, certainly, I had brand new shoes, actually. And uh, so, and they were awesome. And I didn't end up with a blister or anything. So the funny part of that story was I sent a letter to um, the company who, uh, whose shoes they were and just told them how great their shoes <laughs> was as I ran 60 blocks. And they sent me more shoes. So it was oh. kind of fun. <laughs> uh, once a marketer, always a marketer. Yeah, yeah. So I'm told. That is, that is awesome. So after, after that, you were, you were inspired to write a book, correct? After that visit to Africa? Well, not really. I, I, you know, I I continued on the journey and then um, I really felt that I was to close our business and um, start serving in Africa. So Mm. that's what happened next. And my husband and I started, I mean, it's a very complicated story and some is told in my book, it's not okay with me, but my husband and I started a nonprofit called Heart for Africa. And that's hardforafrica.org. <laughs> Once a marketer, always a marketer. Oh, yeah. And uh, and we, you know, we we moved out right of Georgia from Canada, and we just started taking teams of people over to Africa. And that the book came sort of in the middle of all of that, of leading teams over, taking people to see the poorest of the poor, taking them to see, you know, the thirteen and fourteen year old girls who are being raped and, mm-hmm. you know, eating out of garbage cans and things like that. And it's really life changing. So. Uh, the book came out of those experiences. The first book came out of those experiences. So your initial involvement in Africa, was your desire to to raise awareness, to start to make a difference, to engage Americans? I mean, what, what was kind of happening in those early days? Well, I think in the early days, I I loved to learn, and I really wanted to learn more about HIV and AIDS. Why is the, the pandemic wiping out the continent why are these young girls getting pregnant what why is this why are there hundreds of thousands of children living on the street it just wasn't something that i could understand and um so i part of it for me was education and then the second part was getting people to come I, i had this i felt this urgency to bring people with me to go over and see what was going on and see for themselves and then get involved to build homes for children who are living on the street that was really in, in the early days, it was building orphanages, getting the kids off the streets. Yes. So speaking of building orphanages, there was a tract of land in Africa, 2,500 acres. How did that, how did that all materialize? <laughs> well, we, we had been working in Malawi, Kenya, and South Africa, and Swaziland for a number of years. And we just didn't feel like we were getting the traction. We didn't feel like we were... Um, I guess, moving the dial as quickly as we'd like to. So my husband really was given a vision to uh, buy a piece of land and see if we could grow food and see if he just had this big, big vision. Mm-hmm. You know, raise children on the farm, uh, have a farm, have a dairy, have an egg barn, and um, vocational training and all those things, and see how we can really make a difference in the tiny country of Eswatini. It used to be called Swaziland. It's recently, so sometimes I say Swaziland and sometimes I say Eswatini. But so, so he sent our country director uh, out with the instruction of finding 100 acres of land. And it's most of it is uh, land owned by the king. It's crown land. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So when she came back to us, she said, well, I found a piece of land, but it's 2,500 acres. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Surely I said 100 acres. And she said, well, Ian, you know, you can't just go and buy land here because most of it is crown land. So that was, you know, we found this 2,500 acres. And uh, the only challenge with that is it was a million dollars. And of course, we were a million U.S. dollars short of a million dollars. And we ended up, yeah. And so we ended up meeting, um, we came back to Alpharetta and just had this, I mean, it wasn't even a pipe dream. It was just crazy to think that we'd buy land in Africa, you know, that was bush. There was nothing, you know, there was no rivers, there was no roads, there was no water, nothing. And that much and, land, that's just... Seems... And that much land, and it's mountainous. I mean, it looks like San Diego. It's very beautiful, mm. but it looks like San Diego. And um, and then we coincidentally, not that I believe in coincidences, mm-hmm. met a man, um, were invited to lunch, and sat in a nice, big, fancy boardroom in downtown Alpharetta, and he wrote a personal check for a million dollars. So we, we were, oh you know, I was thinking that... I was thinking I would need Skyway because I thought the idea was crazy, honestly. You know, my husband had this vision and, and he's saying things like, you know, I said, what are you going to do with the land? He goes, well, you know, I, I will have a dairy and we'll be able to make her, you know, we'll, we'll have milk. And I'm like, you know, you've never seen a cow, but we're going to grow vegetables. And I said, you don't even like vegetables. You don't even eat vegetables, you know, and, and we're going to have an orphanage. I'm like, we had a nanny. We had a live-in nanny. So the whole thing just seemed completely crazy to me, but God, God oh does crazy. And so, you know, I had said to him, you know, God is going to have to skywrite this for me to buy into it. Mm. But when this man wrote a check, it was like, well, okay, that's kind of <laughs> like skywriting. So we, we started the, to answer the question, how do you buy land in Africa? Yeah. <laughs> that was in 2009. That was 10 years ago. Mm. That is amazing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Crazy yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. The sacrifices you've made as a family are um, really extraordinary. I mean, I remember when when you packed up and and moved there from, you know, our beautiful suburban Alpharetta, Georgia, <laughs> with like every possible restaurant and amenity and medical facility you could ever imagine. And mm-hmm. I mean, y'all just packed up and, and went and your kids were held at the time? Well, Spencer had just finished, when we actually moved to Eswatini, Spencer had graduated from high school, and Chloe was going into grade 11, or 11th grade. Yeah, so it wasn't so they just both you. Moved with us. Yeah, it was no, a whole... it was them. Yeah. yeah, so we moved them both, and then we brought Spencer back. Um, he went to uh, Florida State that year, so we got him into school. It was important to me that we all move, mm-hmm. and not that we're leaving him. Yes. And it may have been just semantics for mom, but that mm-hmm. helped mom. <laughs> And then uh, Chloe, there was a really good school in Eswatini that she was going to go to, that she did go to. And actually, um, it was built during apartheid. And Nelson Mandela's kids went there. Desmond Tutu's children went there. So we thought, hey, this this is great. It was a great international school. And But it was like a two-hour drive from our house. And, uh, and we live in the bush. And so it was dirt road. And it was just a really really tough couple semesters for her. So she ended up going to school in Taiwan oh, for two that, years. How did that come about? Uh, you know, it, it, it's all crazy God stories, but um, I, I was connected with some people in Taiwan. Both of my books have been translated into Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I would go to Taiwan a couple of times a year and do book tours 
um, my book was uh, in all the high schools and universities there, and they just kind of liked the crazy story of this, you know, white lady from Canada who ended up in Africa. Yeah. So we had a we had a really cool following in Taiwan, and I was speaking at a Christian school, and um, it was kind of like a missionary school for all the people who all the kids whose mission parents were missionaries in China and, and in Asia. Mm-hmm. And I just said to them, you know, gosh, I wish my daughter could find a school like this. Can you, can you pray for my daughter? Because, you know, we need to find a school like this. And I went back and told Chloe about it. And she said, well, I think I should go there. And I said, you are not going to school in Taiwan. You know, we're living in Africa. And, um, and you know, your, your brother's in Georgia. And you want to go to school in Taiwan? Like, no, no, no. Hmm. And anyway, she said, well, will you pray about it? I was like, ah, you know. Dang. So I'm like, Hello. okay, I'm going to pray about it, but I know for sure that that's not going to be what God wants, and sure enough, it was. So the following semester, she was in in uh, Taiwan, and it was the best two years of her life. Okay, so I got to know, so when when you and Ian and the family got there, was there any infrastructure in place on the property, or well, we bought the land in two thousand nine, and so we started building. We, we we started clearing land. As I said, it was African bush, and so we started clearing land. They got the first crops in. We built a farm manager's building. We bought some. We built some volunteer housing, and we had water put in. So we were running pipes up to five hundred thousand liter tanks, and we had. So we also had built a house. It took us about eight months, but we built a lovely, comfortable home on the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so we moved into our home and we shipped our furniture. And I tried to make it as home-like as possible, you know, difficult transition. Yes. But it was important. And that was in 2012. And, and it was really important to us that we moved that because that was when we got our first baby. So a major part of our ministry, we focus in four areas, hunger, orphans, poverty, and education. Mm-hmm. And the orphan, the O in hope, is our children's home or orphanage. And so... Um, and we, that is called we, what, Jenny? Uh, it's, it's called, well, the, the whole farm is called Project Canaan. Mm-hmm. And the home itself is called the El Roe Baby Home. So that's for our small babies, but they're really Project Canaan children. So we accept, there's a problem in the country of baby dumping. So what's happening is, um, uh, Eswatini has the highest HIV rate in the world. So since 2005, we've really lost a whole generation of people. So you see, you know, that the adult generation, the 35 to 45 year olds died during, in, by, in waves back in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so the grandmothers kind of rose up from their, you know, sitting on the side of those you know, outside in the sun by their mud huts and raise the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Well, those grandchildren are now teenagers and and they're hungry. You know, the, the country is very poor. So more than half of the total population of the country now are orphans and vulnerable children. So we have a problem where 13, 14, 15-year-old girls or teenagers of any age really are having sex for food mm-hmm. and they're getting pregnant. They're hungry. They go and nail a, a man down the road um, it, it, honestly, it could be a pastor. It could be a just a, a an uncle, and they'll have sex with them for a loaf of bread. And of course, they get STDs. They might become HIV positive. But what we're seeing also is a lot of teen pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And so, what's happening is this: you know, thir- let's take a 13 year old girl, and she gets pregnant. Her mother's gone. She's living with her grandmother. She's not going to go with the very closed society, so she can't go and tell her grandmother that she's pregnant. She might not even know what being pregnant means. Yeah. 
he may not even know what the signs are because there's no sex education. So suddenly this baby starts to come. She feels like she has to go to the toilet. She goes to an outdoor pit latrine and she gives birth. And the baby drops into, you know, drops down 10 feet into human excrement. And, and then I think many, many babies die there. But sometimes we hear the, someone hears the baby cry. They call a neighbor. They call the police. The police call social welfare. And then the, someone will be tied, have a rope tied around them, and they go down into this awful pit latrine and pull out a newborn baby. Oh, now, the police will, will do a, a extensive uh, research to try to find out who in the community gave birth. If they do find the mother, they'll put her in jail. But the baby has to go somewhere. So the baby goes to the hospital. And once social welfare and the police and the hospital have done all their reports, they will call me and say, I have a newborn or I have a two-month-old, um, and, and can, we, can we house this child? So as of today, just, just before I started on this call, we got baby number 252. Oh, we, only accept, <laughs> we only accept children under the age of two, but, but they stay with us until they're legally 18, and we're committed to them until they're 21, once they've you know, gotten through the teenage years and either gone through university or learned a trade or got a job. But so right now, so back to 2012, the reason we needed to move was our first baby arrived. Mm -hmm. And Ian and I felt very strongly that if we are going to be the mother and father, because we're the legal guardians of these children, yes. we need to be there. Yes. And you know, other people can run the farm and other people can run the vocational training, but we need to be there to set the tone as mom and dad. Yeah, so our oldest children, because they, you know, we've been there for, for uh, well, since 2012. So our oldest of the 252 are eight. <laughs> oh my gosh. And our youngest um, is about two weeks. Oh my gosh. We have 42 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> we have 15 babies under six months. Um, but we have a lot of really wonderful staff. Yeah. Really, you know, we, we train them with 96 full-time staff that are working with our with our 252 children. So yeah. it's great. I love it. I love my life. I can't ever, I can't imagine ever uh, doing anything else. Wow. So I love when you talk about the, the aunties. Yes. They are. Tell me about the aunties. Oh, the aunties are just, so every, each one of our homes has a senior supervisor and a supervisor. And the homes are broken down by age. So um, we have a place called Kutula Place, which means place of peace, a place of rest. And that's for our one-day-old to six months. And that's really specialized care because so many children come to us very broken, mm -hmm. very malnourished. They might have tuberculosis. They might have HIV, um, severely malnourished, skin diseases, head injuries. I mean, I have burned. You know, we had a baby that uh, made the newspapers because she ended up coming to the U.S. for surgery, but she was dumped in a pit latrine. Her mother went back to, and to check on her five hours later to make sure she was dead, and the baby was crying. So the mother went and got coals and dumped hot coals into the toilet to kill the child. An uncle heard the baby crying and ran and got a shovel and then shoveled dirt oh. in on top of the fire, on top of the newborn that was in human waste. The baby lived. She's four now. Mm. Like, it, it's just, actually, I think she's three. I jumped the year. 
but just, you know, miraculous story. So she, she would have gone into where the tiny babies live. Now, around six months, they moved to the original baby home, the Elroy baby home. And they're there from six months to 18 months. And those aunties just let me you know. For those baby lovers, the ones who just love holding babies, um, these ones are learning, you know, all of, we're always monitoring their developmental uh, achievements and you know, it's tummy time and it's crawling and walking. And, you know, when the, when the children get up and they stand and they take their first step or two, all the aunties just yell and scream and cheer mm-hmm. and do the fuzzy dancing. And it's just, beautiful to see oh my gosh and then around two they moved to the toddler home and as i said we have 42 year olds so you've got you know you're, everyone's toilet training they're learning how to say no in english and Saswati, and it's uh it's but it's a great place and they're just love one of the things we say is we love these children back to life mm. and it's really true because some of them just come in so broken and so hurting yeah. So we had we had a little eleven month old who came to us. Well, we had two children come just before I left to come here, and the eleven month old was terrified of adults. Like she would, she came in the arms of a police officer, and when any adult went near her, she just about climbed over the top of the officer to get away. Mm-hmm. And we learned over a few days once they found the mother and put her in jail that mother was an alcoholic, so the baby actually was detoxing for the first week because she was drinking from the mother's breast. But for the most time, she was just lying on the ground. So the, there are a lot of children at her homestead, and it was the children who had put her on their backs and carried her around. So once we learned this, and, and she just she was inconsolable, screaming, crying all the time, all day, 24 hours a day. So we, when we learned about the children, we took her out to where the toddlers were, and she calmed right down. Because she was, and you could see she was looking, looking, looking for someone that she recognized. And she saw one of our little two-year-olds who we call Molly. And Molly must have looked like someone she knew because she was trying to get onto Molly's back, the two-year-old's back. And after six days, um, she was she was fine. Her it was like her heart was healed. She was down from her alcohol addiction or Mm -hmm. consumption. And, and then the, the very next day, a little guy whose birthday is today, he turns two today, mm-hmm. he arrived and he was burned. His arm was burned, his stomach was burned, and, and it was an accident. It wasn't an intentional burn like some of our kids come in, but he had been living with the wife of his biological father who had him with another girl. And the husband, had, the father of the child, had actually beat his wife so badly that she was blind. And he beat her because she couldn't give him a child. Mm-hmm. So he went and impregnated another girl, got the child, brought that child to his blind wife and demanded that she care for him. And I guess he snuck up behind her and she spilled boiling water on him by accident. And so, you know, the police intervened and he arrived to us just his whole chest and his arms scalded. Um, but we'll love him back to life. Mm-hmm. And today he got a birthday cake. So oh. <laughs> today's a good day for our little Sunday. Yeah. yeah, well, I read your blog and I follow, follow you on social media. And I just, uh, I'm, I marvel at the hope, but there is so much heartbreak. And I'm like, yeah. how does she do it? How does she do? There's a lot of heartbreak, that's for sure. It's, um, you know, there's days that I sit, at the end of every day, I, 
Ian and I sit out in our, our patio and we look out over the farm and all that God has done. I mean, what's happened in 10 years is it, it, to say miraculous is, I mean, it can't be an understatement, but it is. You know, we've been there for 10 years and we've built 67 buildings. Oh, you know, we have 320 employees, um, 252 children. We have schools, you know, our school goes up to uh, grade five and um, artisans. We have our own carpentry center. We have greenhouses and field farming and medical clinics. I mean, it's absolutely miraculous what God has done. But so, so for me, my therapy, I guess, how I cope with it is I sit on the patio at the end of the day look out and looking over the farm reminds me that it's not me. Yeah. It's impossible that it's me. Again, I'm the girl who had to live in nanny and now <laughs> mothers are in training, you know, training the staff because they weren't, that's the generation that weren't raised by their parents. Yeah. You know, all of my staff were raised by their grandmothers wow. and, and they were just kind of fed, you know, many of them don't have, don't have middle school education. Many of them don't have high school education. Mm-hmm. Some of them can't read and write. But they can love children, and they're teachable, and they love Jesus, and they love to be loved. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's teary days, um, but I think, you know, what if I had said no? Like when, when I felt the call of God in my life, what if I had said, you know what, no, I'd really like to stay in Alpharetta because, as you said, you know, it's all the restaurants and there's mm-hmm. the, you know, there's the this and we can golf and we have friends and we can go to movie theaters and you know, the grocery stores have, the shelves are full. <laughs> yeah. And what if I had said no? You know, I believe that these children, you know, this is a theological discussion and maybe not everyone agrees with me, but I believe these children would still be alive, but I would have missed the blessing. Mm. They wouldn't have lived in the house that I built. They would have lived somewhere different, but mm. God's timing over their lives, the number of days he has for their lives is the number of days he has. Mm. And if I had said no, I'd like to say in my cushy life, someone else would have got the blessing. Mm-hmm. And I would have missed it. And I think about that every single day and it terrifies me. Wow. What if I'd missed it? And how many people that I know, that you know, that are listening today could be missing it because they're afraid yeah. or they like their life? I, mean, I like my life. Yeah. I had a great life. I was comfortable. Yeah. But wow, I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't change anything. Mm. Even when like there's no sour cream in the <laughs> at Christmas time <laughs> in in our country, you can't buy you can't find sour cream, can't find green onions. You know, there's just these things yeah. you can't buy. So it's like okay, so we don't have those special potatoes that we normally have. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But we get to go down, and this <laughs> Christmas we'll probably have 260 kids, and we get to hand out. Um, a gift to everyone mm. and we get to watch them open their pajamas and, oh. and eat their sweets and how excited they are. And they're just so thankful. Yeah. The children are so beautiful <laughs> and so they just seem to be so joy filled. They are. They are because they're being raised to know that, that the Lord is their heavenly father. Mm. You know, he will never leave them. He will never forsake them. People will let us down. You know, I'm adopted. I was when my birth mother was 15 years old. Um, she got pregnant in Northern Ontario, and you know, the Lord allowed that to happen so that I'm here today. Mm-hmm. And I was adopted into a wonderful family. Uh, my parents were amazing, and and I'm here today because of them, obviously. Sure. But 
you know, it's amazing because I, I have many conversations with young teenagers who want to commit suicide. They tried to abort the child. Mm-hmm. The police have intervened or the chief has intervened and they'll call me and I sit down with them and say, listen, you know, my birth mother was 15 years old when she gave birth to me and look at, look at where I am today. You know, I'm here having this conversation with you because God had a plan for my life mm-hmm. and God's the only one who can make a baby. He's the only one. You could have six, you know, how many uh, couples are infertile? You know, how many people deal with infertility? Only God can make a baby. And so you're pregnant, you know, you 13 or 14 year old young woman, you're pregnant because God has a plan for your life and God has a plan for that child's life, just like he has a plan for my life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's helpful to them. You know, they're, they, because they think they're the only one. They're the Mm -hmm. only one who made a mistake. Right. And then they see this lady sitting in front of them whose mother made a mistake in 1963. And I'm the mistake. Yeah. And there's no mistakes in his currency, in his world. And look what God has done with that. That's Right. He doesn't waste anything. Go God. If we, if, we, if we are willing to listen. Right. I love the fact that you and Ian are so in this together. <laughs> well, 28 years of marriage, yes. I guess he's learned to milk a cow now. <laughs> well, he has people. <laughs> We've always been good delegators. And when we were in business, you know, we were good at, we always, our philosophy was, you know, do what we do best and hire people to do the rest. You know, if you're, hire a great dairy farmer or a great, you know, whoever is responsible. Like the International Egg Commission has come alongside us and the egg farmers of Canada to create, uh, to build, you know, this, we have 5,000 laying hens that lay an egg every single day. Wow. Seven days a week. Like, you can't turn them off. You can't say, okay, thanks, chickens. We have enough eggs for today. But what we do with those eggs is we hard-boil them. We have this massive um, hard-boiling machine that a company from Denmark, Sunovo from Denmark, custom-made for us, Mm. came and installed it. So we hard-boil 750 eggs at a time. And then we distribute them. We have a partnership group of 30 churches in the most rural areas of the country. And we feed 3,000 children a week. So we give oh them something gosh. called Mana Pack, which is, um, there's an organization here in the States called Feed My Starving Children. They're a wonderful, amazing company, organization that we partner with. And we get a million meals a year from them. And we distribute this dry food pack out to our churches. The women of the church cook it. And it's the orphans and the vulnerable children in that community who come to the church to be fed. And we all know if you're hungry and, you know, people in America haven't dealt with hunger, but you have probably listeners from all over the world and maybe they've seen hunger. And if you're hungry, nobody wants to be preached at. Right. You don't want to listen if you're hungry. If you've got a foot, empty stomach, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I'm hungry. Right. But you feed them and then you give them a hard-boiled egg so they have that perfect protein. And then you can sit down and have a conversation with the children about Jesus or the weather or what's going on in their lives or hear what's happening in their home, it, it gives you the, the right and it opens the door to be in relationship with them. That is amazing. Well, well one more quick story because um, I know you are super busy and have a lot to do. Um, so on your 10th anniversary, we were watching with delight as the celebration started to unfold. And yeah. then what happened? Unravel. Unravel is probably a better word. Oh, 
Yeah, so we, so we're, we're, as I said, we started in 2009, so 2019 is its big 10th anniversary. And, and I'd love to add that in 2029, so 10 years from now, uh-huh. we have our first graduating class <gasps> of high school students. Oh my gosh. So it's kind of cool because we're halfway there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when you think of it that way on the timeline, we're 10 years in, we got 10 years to go to, to finish yeah. all the infrastructure. I'll be 65 and, you know, we will have trained the, the next generation of leadership and mm-hmm. I can retire on the mountaintop and tell, you know, stories. <laughs> but so we had this wonderful 10th anniversary celebration. We built an amphitheater for it and the deputy prime minister came and the children performed and it was just a magical, magical event. And I was the MC. And at early, early on in the morning, I looked up the mountain and there was a fire, a little bit of smoke up there. And uh, so there's fires often, and it was the dry season, so our our fire crew went and checked it out, and they came back, you know, an hour later and said, everything's fine, it's on the other side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Well, it sort of started burning brighter and brighter, and, and I looked up, at, you know, we're, it was about a three-hour program, so halfway in, I said, well, I really hope that fire isn't going to burn my house, ha, ha, ha. And it was 5 o'clock that afternoon that um, the fire was 10 feet from our house, oh, and burning like i mean like a wildfires i mean you've seen the wildfires mm-hmm. in california mm-hmm. you know you're the listeners are not uh, unfamiliar with wildfires and we had wildfires and w- there's no fire station that you can call there's no firefighters to call you call all the swazis available and they cut down branches off the trees and they and they say they switch the fire out so they're basically out there with tree branches trying to beat out the fire and they, they pretty much got it out, but then it was blue. The wind came up again at 3 a.m., so we're all back out there again and back to bed at, or back in the house at 6. And then the next day, the wind, angry, angry winds came and just started ripping the fire this way and that way. We had to evacuate the children. We evacuated 40 babies between the ages of 6 months and 18 months. And Ian was trying to keep, it was terrifying. And Ian was there trying to keep the fire from getting to the tiny babies because we couldn't get them out in time, Mm -hmm. 10 small little ones. And the fire flared up in front of him and he flew back against an electric fence, which was off, and then had to dive down to the right. So his hair was singed, his eyebrow was singed, you know, bruised badly on his hip Mm -hmm. and his knee and shoulder. And then the fire jumped over the baby home, had a race to the school. And then got down to where we have 100 artisans making a kutsala, which is, you know, a wonderful brand, K-H-U-T-S-A-L-A. Uh-huh. It's all handmade jewelry. We make our own ceramic beads. Mm. And so we have 100 full-time employees there. We evacuated them. And at that moment, I thought, you know what, we might die today. Mm. And we had some volunteers from the U.S. with us. And the, and the fires just kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I thought, I don't have time to call anybody. Oh. I need to jump on Facebook because if something happens to us, no one's going to know. And who, who's going to call and say, where's Janine Nian? I mean, who, who would you call if we're gone? So I made the decision in the moment to, to hop on Facebook Live and do a live video feed of this so that people could be praying for us. You know, I, and you, you, I think you saw it, and you know, I'm saying if there's any board members or any staff watching this, please pass the word along, pray for us. And I think the first one was an hour long. And I just happened to be at the chapel that was built in memory of my biological father, who I never met, 
a crazy story that I won't tell today, but, and it was a thatch roof and I saw a flame or a spark, let's call it, fly, oh, 60, 80, 100 feet from one side of a building over the roof and land on the grass roof. You saw it. And within two minutes, the, the whole chapel burned down in front of me. And the fires burned for 36 hours. Uh, we had to evacuate the children twice. The big kids, we had to get them out of their houses. And we just said, hey, we're going to go down to the dairy and see the cows. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Made it an adventure. And, you know, they walked down through the smoke and um, we transported as many of them as we could because it was about a mile and a half. And got down there and I went down to see them just to reassure them. Ian and I went to reassure the kids that everything was all right. And I'll never forget our little Ruth, who was seven years old at the time, looked at me. And looking back up the mountain, all you could see was smoke. You couldn't see their homes. You couldn't see our home. You couldn't see any building. So you, you, you make the assumption that they're gone. And seven-year-old Ruth looked at me and she said, Maggie, which is mom, but mom, who's going to protect us? <laughs> and I said, that makes me cry. I said, well, we are. You know, dad and I are. And Jesus, through him, he's going to protect you. So the next, the kid child right beside him is Ben. And Ben says, Maggie, we were supposed to have ice cream at four o'clock. Are we still going to have ice cream today? <laughs> and it was like, you know, they're just kids. Yeah. They're just kids. And it was great. You know, everybody laughed. And I said, well, Ben, I think maybe today it's going to be an apple snack, but we can have ice cream tomorrow, <laughs> assuming that the ice cream machine is still there. And so it was, and we survived, and the only building that burned was the chapel. Mm -hmm. And we took aerial photos the next day that I posted on social media, and mm -hmm. you could see everything burned, everything, like within five feet of every single one of those 67 buildings. And the only thing that burned was the chapel. Amazing. So one of our board members said, you know, that the Lord burned down his house so that none of the others mm -hmm. had to burn. It's unreal. Kind of profound. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I cry. <laughs> I yeah. we have good days and bad days. They're, they're all hard days. And didn't even I the hear... good days are hard days. Yeah, and let's we haven't even talked about the snakes. Oh Lord, we have snakes. <laughs> Pythons and sitting Black cobras mamba. and mambas and oh yeah. yeah. But they're they're kind of the least of our worries, <laughs> believe it or not. not. For sissies, for sure. Africa's well. not for sissies. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Well, oh my gosh. I mean, the work you're doing for those babies and that community is just really, um, whew. so if people want to help, um, yeah. I'm sure there's, there's lots of needs. Um, Jane, yeah. how can, how can we help support the amazing work that y'all are doing? Um, well, um, Kutsala dot, uh, our Kutsala website. So if you go to Heart for Africa, heart for, heart, F-O-R-Africa.org, mm -hmm. you can learn all about what we do. There's videos there. Um, that we have 10 day or 11 day service trips. People can come and surf with us for 11 days. It's easy to sign up and fundraise. And then we have Kutsala where we sell Christmas ornaments, you know, shop, shop, shop. Um, as I mentioned, we make our own ceramic beads. We call them Swazi mud. So, and they're just stunning. Mm. And it's all made by artisans there. Uh, Keychains, we do fundraisers. So if you want to raise money for your child's soccer team or your piano, uh, recite whatever, um, we have a fundraising program. So that's all at kutsala.com. And, um, and child sponsorship. You know, we have yeah. lots of children who need sponsoring. 
So if you go to the heartforafrica.org website, mm-hmm. you can sponsor a child for any amount. If you have $10 and you want to support a child for $10 a month, you can do that. $30 a month, $100 a month. It takes oh it's $225 to fully care for one of our children 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Day shift, night shift, food, clothing. But any mm-hmm. amount can help us sponsor a child. Yeah. What, what was that dollar amount again, Janine? 225 for fully caring for a child. That's amazing. And what about um, logistics like diapers? And do you have like an Amazon? Well, once a year we do an Amazon drive. And uh, UPS is a just a wonderful partner of ours. And they ship a 40-foot container over every August. So in June and July, we do a big diaper drive and we post on social media and and you can go online to our wish list and you shop. And when you purchase it, it actually goes directly to our warehouse. So right now we don't have that going. In fact, the the container for this year just arrived. So that was kind of fun. It's like Christmas, you know, and at the end of the diaper drive, like the last week, we'll also add on bicycles, like some fun stuff, bicycles and little bikes rocking horses and things like that. So mm-hmm. it really is Christmas when that container arrives. That's amazing. That is. Wow. Well, this has just, um, I'm so, so um, blessed to have had the chance to connect with you again, even though it's well, it great to hear your oh. voice. I haven't seen you in so many years. <laughs> I know. Each other face to face, but maybe next time. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I'll catch maybe you at you'll church. Come. When you're here. You I'm going to do a I podcast would... series from Africa. I know. Gosh, the stories like there. I mean, just the, there. I mean, the, of course there's the babies, but the, the story about the eggs, that's, that's pretty amazing <laughs> in itself, you know, just yeah. the, um, the, the impact that you're having beyond the, the 2,500 acres in, in really helping raise up a whole country. It's mm-hmm. just change, We're trying to change the next generation. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do is, is create the leaders of the future because the adults are dying. Mm. And we're really being left in a situation that it's like the Lord of the Flies. Mm. Yeah. Well. But come, come on over. As I said, we can do a, you could do a podcast and you could do one day with our egg farmer guys and the next day with Kusala and another one with the aunties. That would be fun. Oh my gosh. I'm Bring some of your listeners. so going to make that happen. Janine Maxwell, thank you so much for for being here on the Relevate podcast, and um, my best to Ian and your. So how are, how are um, Chloe and Spencer doing? They're doing great. Chloe's actually finishing her last year of university in Canada. She's at Brock University, nice. and Spencer is in Chicago. He just finished doing his double masters in international business. He was in Barcelona. And just moved to Chicago and is on the job search in the consulting world. Oh, man. Like looking at the big five and pretty excited about starting his life there. Rockstar kids. We're very proud of our kids. And honestly, sure. they are our biggest supporters. You know, mm. there's a lot of kids who would kind of run away from the family and think, mom and dad have ruined my life. But there's no one who supports us more than our kids do, which is really cool. And oh. they consider these children their brothers and sisters. It's really sweet. Oh, my gosh. That yeah. is amazing. Well, good luck on your Thank you. stay in the States and to Canada and um, keep up the great work and let's just stay in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, in- inviting me to be a part of your podcast today and I look forward to seeing you in Africa. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. I'll talk Have to a you good soon. day. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
I've found that before delivering a big vision for our lives, God often plants a seed or a shred of an idea in our hearts. For Janine, it was the resounding message, it's not okay with me, after seeing the street kids in Zambia. It would eventually take years for the big vision of Heart for Africa and Project Canaan to materialize, but it first started with the restlessness of spirit and a relentless call on her heart. It is not okay with me. I hope you'll take time to learn more about Heart for Africa and consider supporting this amazing organization. The best way to connect is through their website, heartforafrica.org. May we all be inspired by Janine's grit, bravery, and incredible faith in finding our own. It's not okay with me. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.